to episode 49 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today we'll be reviewing a terrifying apocalyptic fable called Yesterday, which asks the unfathomable question, what would happen if the Beatles never existed? Fortunately, we never have to know the answer to that question, but I would love for you to answer this question. How are you doing? No, Scott, I, I'm doing well. I'm on technically on vacation now. My company is generous in that they force us to take vacation next week, so we have to use some of our vacation days for a summer break. But nevertheless, it's still still nice that it's here. Um, looking forward to a, a full week off. Looking forward to Spider-Man: Far From Home, and well, actually, uh, just you know, a little over 24 hours for me. Um, so pretty excited about that. I will say I was in a better mood until about an hour ago when we started having serious technical issues before we started recording this podcast. But hopefully, talking about the Beatles will make things better. Man, you're getting the whole week off, huh? Do, you, do, do they ever make you work over there? Oh, yeah, occasionally. Only <laughs> only on days that end in Y. Yeah, the the time that uh, you texted me at like 1230 or something and said that you were still at work. Yeah, AM, uh, not, not PM, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, uh, you know, I think they could give you a couple weeks off and I would still never make that accusation. <laughs> oh, but yeah. yeah, all right. Scott, well, as I said up top today, it is all aboard the Yellow Submarine as we take a magical mystery tour through Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis's Yesterday. Set in modern-day Suffolk, England, Yesterday tells the story of Jack Malik, a struggling musician played by Hamish Patel. After years of encouragement from his loyal manager, Ellie, played by Lily James, but years of little to no commercial success, Jack decides to give up music altogether and take on a permanent position in retail. That is, until one evening, the world goes dark for 12 seconds. In the midst of this brief blackout, a cycling Jack collides with a bus, and when he wakes up in the hospital the next day, he soon discovers that something is not quite right about the post-blackout world. That something is, of course, that he is the only person who has ever heard of the Beatles. With an army of classic hits suddenly at his disposal, Jack sets out on a long and winding road to stardom with a little help from his friend Ed Sheeran, and his agent, Deborah, played by Kate McKinnon. But along the way, he's forced to question not just the ethics of what he's doing, but what kind of impact it has on the world, and more importantly, himself. Scott, this is not the first recent movie we review- we've reviewed with a litany of classic rock hits on its soundtrack. But what I want to know is, which song did Yesterday have you singing by the end? Here Comes the Sun or Help? Uh, here comes the sun probably right like this movie is a lot of fun I really enjoyed it it's it's impossible and I'm sure at some point we'll dive a little bit deeper into this to not think about uh, other musical biopics this is not a biopic to be clear but other musical biopics when you're thinking about this movie those being of course Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody and I will say up front that I had more fun with this movie than I did with either of those. Maybe that's my own musical taste. Maybe not. We'll jump into that. I'm sure as we dive through for the next, you know, 45 minutes or so, but I did really enjoy this movie. One of the things about this movie though, is that I think that it it probably, for me, it felt like a little bit like a sugar rush. If that makes sense. Like I really, really enjoyed it in the moment. There are parts that I didn't like so much and we'll get to those things even in the moment, 
But one of those things, one of the things about this movie is that I feel like it just wore off a little bit after I walked out out of the theater. Is as much fun as it was, it didn't necessarily stick with me even to now. Granted, it's been a couple of days since I've seen it. For me, I think part of that is just because it's a really awesome premise. I think the premise is actually really, really cool. I think Danny, whoever dreamed this up, whether it's Danny Boyle or Richard Curtis or some combination of the two, I don't know. But I think it's a really cool premise that mostly goes underexplored in this film. It's largely leveraged for emotional impact towards the end of the movie after it kind of hand waves its way through the beginning. That being said, I think that what you do get is you get Jack Malik played by Haimish Patel to cre- like recreate the magic of for uh, you know the world to hear the Beatles for the first time again. And I think that that's really something special to see on screen. I think that the emotional impact of that can't be understated between his performance, Lily James's performance. I think you have two really strong leads in this movie. I mean, listeners of long time listeners of the podcast will know that I'm I think that we're both huge fans of Lily James, uh, even in Mamma Mia. Here we go again from last year. And also a Richard Curtis film, also a Richard Curtis film. But I also think that in some ways that this movie struggles in similar ways to even Mamma Mia might have. Right. I think that this the the plot is I mean, it's 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 a very standard rom-com. It's predictable. It's not very interesting in the grand scheme of things. And ultimately, I think that I did. I did like this movie. I want to firmly state that here. And I would recommend to go see it, especially if you want to listen to to the Beatles in a a slightly different audio, you know, a slightly different voice, which I think is really cool to do. But at the same time, I think what you're getting when you go see this movie is the Beatles, a cool premise, but a really average story. And uh, when you combine that with the good performances of Lily James and Haimesh Patel with the question marks around like why, why Ed Sheeran is in this movie. I don't think Kate McKinnon is particularly good in this movie personally. I think that it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think I do come out positive overall. Yeah. You know, I think my reaction going into this was about the same as everyone, right? Which is, you know, the trailers have been playing for months. Um, the, tra- the first trailer really blew up when it came out and it was, you know, the, I, I was, I, ca- I went in with the thought that, you know, this is a great premise, but, you know, a premise is nothing if you don't edu- uh, execute on it. And so while, it, you know, it, it's a really cool idea, it also, you know, could have been really bungled in the end. Scott, you know, last night we ha- we happened to watch a movie uh, that I've talked about a few times called Boyhood, which I think uh, is a similar example, right, of a movie that has a great idea. Of, uh, you know, we're going to film a, a kid's life over 12 years. But, you know, it w- again, it would have been nothing if they couldn't execute in the end. And I think that as far as this movie goes, I think it's definitely best appreciated if you look at it as, I mean, what it purports to be, right, which is a fantasy. And I think that a lot of the criticisms I'm seeing and which, you know, I'll respond to some of them uh, at some point with certain elements of this new post Beatles world, uh, or I guess you could say pre Beatles world. <laughs> in some ways. Uh, and, and, you know, just with how they follow through on the, on the premise of the movie, I think, you know, there are explanations for some of them. I, I don't think that the, I don't buy into a lot of the criticisms that people are, um, making, but at the same time, I think, um, at a certain point it is a fantasy, right? You just have to surrender to some of the areas where they, it makes you, you know, suspend your disbelief a little bit. I mean, of course, we don't actually believe either that the the world could actually have a worldwide blackout for 12 seconds or anything, but that's not the important thing. And I think that 
what this movie does so right that, um, you know, you compared it to the recent musical biopics um, that we've seen that have been really disappointing in Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman. I think that this movie absolutely does the thing that those movies haven't done, which is they it does justice to the music of, um, you know, the subject that it is taking on, the Beatles here. And I think that's a really hard thing to do when it's the Beatles. Um because they are the biggest band of all time. They're the most popular band of all time. And, you know, many would say the greatest band of all time. Um, and so to make a movie uh, that really does justice to not just their music, but their legacy is, you know, a great accomplishment for Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis. And I think that, you know, we talked about this recently when we reviewed Rocket Man, that we, we, we tossed around the idea that maybe the best way to pay tribute to these great musicians was, to, not to make, you know, a biopic about their lives or anything, but to put their um, songs in the context of an original story. And of course, that's exactly what we get here. And, you know, Scott, maybe we were onto something because I think this is this movie is really, really successful. And I think that, you know, I, I said a second ago that I think it pays tribute to not just the music of the Beatles, but their legacy. And I think that's the most important element. And the reason that this movie was interesting to me and, you know, to push back on something you said, I you know, it, yes, okay, it's a feel-good rom-com. You you kind of know how it's going to end, but there were definitely things in the movie that I did not see coming, and that were that uh, stepped away from the predictable arc that you you know expect to see in this kind of a movie. And of course, we'll talk about some of those. Yeah, I mean, um, just to, just the top here, like like what? I, I don't think anything. I mean, for me, nothing in this wasn't predictable. Okay, well, I mean, so f- to to start off, there are two characters in this movie that they show up, and okay, it's pretty clear what their role is going to. And like they show up at different times in the movie, one at an early concert that Jack has and another time, another one shows up when he goes to Liverpool. And it's pretty clear, like what's going on with these characters. But the actual uh, like climax to uh, when these characters actually confront Jack for the first time, I did not see that coming. Uh, I did not see the fact that, well, again, we won't get into spoilers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to but to respond to that, like, I think that that's the thing, right? Like, I think that that is that is what should have been more of the focus of the movie, whereas instead you get distracted by this really average rom-com. Like, that, like for me, I wish like that, like what you're describing, the subplot that you're describing is the best part of the movie for me easily, hands down, because it's the thing that I thought was most interesting but, about like whether or not, you know, how he was going to wrestle with the fact that that he is essentially stealing the music of the Beatles and passing it off as his own. And for me, what it said is that we talk about, like you talk about Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man. I think like the fundamental problem with those movies is they don't get out of their own way for you to actually enjoy what's in, like the enjoyable part of the movie. And I think for me that to a lesser extent, but still this movie in the rom-com portions just doesn't get out of its own way to let you fully, fully enjoy from my perspective. I know that you feel differently, but like from my perspective, fully enjoy all the best parts about this film. And so I just wish that there had been more of, you know, the column a of, all right, this is the music that I'm passing off as my own. How am I wrestling with this? And less of the column B of here's the rom-com. I realized that I love this person who I can't be with if I, as long as I'm this music star. And I just felt that the, the column B there was so much less interesting. And I wish there was way more of column A. Well, I mean, for me, I think that, yes, the column B, as you call it, um, maybe it lacks originality. I mean, yeah, okay. It, it probably lacks some originality, but at the same time, I think it goes hand in hand with that column A. And that was what I liked about the movie is that I think there's a clear connection between 
what he's going through, sort of the existential crisis that he goes through with the fact that he's, you know, in- reinterpreting these Beatles songs and he's taking credit for all of them. And at the same time, balancing that with the romance. And I think that what this movie gets right is that it, to circle back to my earlier point, it focuses less about the music and more about the people because the people, you know, to some extent make the music and not just the people who create the music, but the people who you share the music with. And I think that's why the romance is important. And maybe it's not always like the most original thing. And maybe at at some points we're wondering, or I mean, we're hoping to go back to the main story of the movie and, and what's going on with Jack. But I think that the characters are very likable. The actors play them very well. And, you know, we want we want them to be together. It, it it's definitely is that classic thing of, you know, you see these characters at the beginning of the movie and you're like, why are these people not together? Like everyone's telling them they should be together. Um, there's really nothing that's really keeping them apart. Um, so, yeah, in that to that extent, it is a little cliche. But I think that the way that it, it weaves perhaps a slightly derivative romance in with what it's saying about music as a whole, not just the Beatles, but music as a whole is what really captivated me in the movie and what really, you know, pulled my, pulled my heartstrings at the end. Um, So I like that element of it. I like what the movie is saying about the legacy of the Beatles and how what they really did was a miracle. Um, And, you know, we'll get into it as I talk some more about some of the criticisms, but I think that it's interesting to toss around the arguments that people are making of like, you know, would the Beatles really be as popular as they are portrayed in the movie? You know, would these songs be as popular if they were to come out today? Um, And that's something I want to discuss a little bit later, but suffice it to say, um, maybe I buried the lead a little bit, but I think that when, although this movie has flaws for sure, and we'll talk about some of those, and I, I'm fully going to acknowledge some of the flaws that this movie has because you know you have to acknowledge them to an extent. You know, this movie made me laugh, made me cry. When I walked out of the movie, I had a huge smile on my face. My heart was full, and looking back at it, I cannot say that there's a single thing I would change about this movie, flaws and all. Um, so, with that in, in mind, I think you know it. It's hard to to put this up next to any other movie going experience um, that I've had this year and say that it wasn't one of the best, if not the best, because I think the movie accomplished everything it set out to do. And, you know, while I could sit there and pick holes in it, um, I think that, you know, I I can't can't deny the way that I felt when the movie ended. And I think that's the ultimate achievement of the movie, even though it may be lacking in some departments. So, I loved it to pieces and uh, I'm interested to talk about it more. Um, anything else you want to say before we get into specifics? No, let's, let's just go ahead and jump right in. All right, let's start with the cast then. So uh, in the lead, we have Himesh Patel, um, most known for his work on the British soap opera East Enders. This, I think, might be his first film role. Um, and, you know, it's a big role and he's, he's asked to fill the shoes of Jack Malik, uh, the songwriter who becomes a worldwide sensation after... Uh, writing all of the, you know, t- taking credit for all of the Beatles songs. Scott, how did you feel that he acquitted himself in uh, a big lead role in his first film role? You know, I thought he did well. I wouldn't say he's the star of this movie. It's hard to ever overshadow the uh, the Beatles music itself, right, as, as the star of the movie. But he does, a, he does a good enough job. I think he's very likable. I think his chemistry with the other lead role, or I guess probably it's technically a supporting role, but the other mate... The, the other significant role in the movie from Molly James, I think really worked for me. I think it really well. It, it definitely gets you on board 
with this movie before you get the hook, right? I mean, there's a solid 15, 20, 30 minutes even, I'm not even sure, uh, of movie before you actually get the hook, before you realize that he's, you know, he's going to need to start making all the Beatles music again. And so I think for that, that was the be- that was it was really great to get that performance and get introduced to this person, this character through Himesh Patel and carrying on through the film. I think that he's he's a really good casting for this role of someone who has found himself in a position to be a rock star. Right. But doesn't know how to be isn't really cut out to mm-hmm. be to be fair. Right. And I think that he plays that really, really, really well. And you can see, you know, when he's in those scenes with Kate McKinnon, uh, Ed Sheeran's agent. And when you see these different moments where he's performing, like in the moment when he's performing, he's clearly a performer, right? But he's not good at being the star off the stage, so to speak. He, he looks like a fish out of water. And so I think it's, it's a perfect cast and he did a really great job. Yeah, no, I totally agree uh, with your point about, you know, he, he's grappling with the fact that uh, maybe he's not cut out for stardom. And I think that that's one of the uh, several messages in the movie that I really enjoyed um, is that idea that, you know, maybe not everyone is meant to be a star. And there's one scene towards the end, which a lot of people have been talking, have been talking about it. And it is a little bit spoilery, so we won't get into it uh, in full detail yet. But I think that some people have been wondering the necessity of that scene. And I think that scene for me is what really fully cemented this theme of not everyone is meant to be a star and not every, uh, you know, on the flip side, not everyone is meant to be not a star. Like some people are born to be stars. And if you take them out of that, um, environment they can't thrive just in the same way that uh, jack you know despite the success that he's achieving isn't thriving when he is having this stardom because he's being separated from the people that he loves and you know while he's he's putting out these great songs and achieving success for it um unable to share them with uh ellie the the person that he truly does love and that's why the, the beginning of the movie right when they're together and they're not having much success. That's why that time turns out to be, you know, the most special in the movie because he's able to share those songs, even if he's sharing them with no one else, because uh, no one else is really into his music. He's able to share them with Ellie. So seeing him grapple with that balance between creating this music, achieving success, and, but also sharing this music with the people that he loves, um, I think was a really great way to handle this, uh, this plot and these characters in the movie. And I think Himesh Patel does a, a wonderful job. Um, he has a lot of charisma and it feels right that we have a lesser known actor in this role um, because I think the movie is kind of asking us to question why it is that this guy uh, is able to uh, ascend to, to the place that he is, right? Because the part of the Beatles legacy is not just that they had great songs, but it was the Beatles themselves too, right? It was their personalities. It was their good looks. It was, you know, the perfect storm of things that led to them being the sensation that they were. And Jack, you know, he comes in and he doesn't have some of those things. Um, And so I think, you know, it feels right that we don't have a movie star in this role because I think that's a little bit contrary to what they're trying to say here. And this is something I want to bring up again when we talk about Ed Sheeran, but, um, yeah, suffice it to say, I think that Himesh Patel is a great casting choice here. And for his first film role, he really does knock it out of the park. So I really enjoyed the performance. Yeah, I think that his performance is probably not going to be one that we remember a year from now. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think it's a it's a standout performance. And I think that's part. I mean, that's part of the point, right? That may, that's what makes it a, a good role and a good casting is because 
he's not supposed to stand out in this, you know, dazzling way, right? It's not like a, you know, Lady Gaga on a star is born or something. He's not, not like someone who was meant to be a star, but couldn't get there. Um, he was the kind of person who wasn't meant to be a star, but then got there. And I think that that is what makes it a good casting and a good role. Uh, you know, he won't be in those Oscar nomination, Oscar award category, some like, you know, Rami Malek was last year. But also, I think the movie's better for that. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about his co-lead. Uh, we've already mentioned her a few times uh, and she was in, of course, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, Richard Curtis's last movie. And that is Lily James. Scott, how did you feel that she came off here as Jack's romantic love interest and longtime manager, Ellie? You know, she really probably isn't used in the best way. I don't think Lily James is necessarily her talents are necessarily best used in this movie because I mean, we'll talk more of this when we get to the plot made, but I think this is to some extent as, as good as it is, as you describe, it's being interwoven with the music. It is still a derivative rom-com. And I think that there's lots of situations, if not all of those types of movies that really probably don't do justice to their female actresses in the, in, uh, in those films. And I think that that's probably true for her here. I think she does a really great job with what she has to work with. She plays off the as best she can with both with um, with the other characters around her, whether it's her roommate, whether it's uh, I forget her other her other boyfriend's name in the movie. Gavin. Oh, and then yeah, yeah, yeah good point, Gavin. Um, but then most importantly and most critically for the film itself, I, I think her chemistry with Jaime Patel is is really strong. Again, like I think I'd probably like to see her in something that's a bit of a stronger role. Like I even thought that mom, like her mom in mama Mia, she had a stronger, like a, a more uh, important and critical role to that movie in terms of what she was able to do with the, with the performance and with the role. But I think she was given a limited scope to work with. I think she did it really well, but it was also, again, just probably not a performance that you're going to remember for, for too much longer outside of the fact that her chemistry with 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 High Master Tell was really strong. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there are, you know, there are a couple directions that they took with the character that I liked. I mean, you know, she, she is a little bit more assertive than maybe we're giving her credit for. Like, of course, she's, one, she's the one who first gets him the, the deal with Gavin, which kind of leads to everything, um, you know, after That's the true. blackout. And, and she does stand up for herself with, like, not having – at a certain point in the movie. Where exactly. That's things. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Despite her feelings for Jack, um, you know, she doesn't let him run roughshod over her. Um, you know, she, she is in control of uh, herself and she, she doesn't allow herself to be taken advantage of by Jack just because, um, you know, she has loved him for a long time. Uh, so I did like that. They went in that direction uh, with the character. And yeah, Lily James is just so charismatic um, that I think she elevates Right. What you say maybe is a little bit of a derivative role to the point where I, you know, I barely recognized the derivative nature of it and was really just swept away um, by by her charisma and her on screen presence. So I think it was a good casting choice, even if it's not the meanest role that she has done or will do. Yeah. I mean, she's got those British musicals on locks. So. Yeah, she, she definitely does. I mean, she and Richard Curtis are making a nice pair now uh, in movies that I think uh, are have both been better than we expected them to be. But okay, Scott, let's move on now to the supporting cast because I want to talk about something you said at the start of um, the review, which is that you thought that uh, you don't know, really know why Ed Sheeran was in this movie. Of course, he plays himself here um, and he, you know, he's someone who helps Jack along on his career after Jack starts to achieve a certain level of stardom. Ed Sheeran contacts him and, uh, you know, they form a, a friendship and a partnership of sorts. 
Um, so I want to hear more about why you feel that is so that then I can t- talk about why I think that it putting Ed Sheeran in the movie was actually one of the best things that the filmmakers could have done. I understand like why Ed Sheeran is in this movie. Like he's in this movie because most people aren't going to, aren't really probably going to like, they see Ed Sheeran's name like, Oh, why is Ed Sheeran in this movie? Let's go, let's go sit in the, in the seats here. Let's go watch this movie. I think there are, there is like some group of people probably particularly in the UK who will go see this movie because Ed Sheeran's in it. Right. Like younger people, people our age, people maybe even a little bit younger than us who haven't listened to the Beatles as much and ha- and like like Ed Sheeran a lot. I think that there is a group of people. I also understand that it, it's the juxtaposition, right, of someone who is a bona fide star with someone who is a pretender in many ways. Right. It's that juxtaposition. And then you have these, you know, you have a couple of scenes here and there where he's just like, yeah, you're better than me at this. It just all feels really disingenuous to me is the problem. I think it's like a lot of the scenes with Ed Sheeran, like acknowledging that, you know, that Jack, that Jack is better than him, whether it's a songwriting. It's like, yeah, yeah. Jack just went and like copied a Beatles song and like, yeah, it's better than yours because he didn't come up with something on his own, on his own in 10 minutes. Like, I don't like, I don't get anything out of this scene. It doesn't, it doesn't really add anything for me. And so like, that's an example of why I feel like it was just, I guess just, just played for, for laughs or played for, you know, some other impact of, like, oh, look how great the Beatles music was. Like, Ed Sheeran can't hold a candle to the Beatles. Like, sure. Yeah, like, I don't think anyone is saying that Ed Sheeran is, like, a better artist than the Beatles. So, like, who's surprised that a Beatles song is better than what Ed Sheeran can write in 10 minutes? Like, I, I just don't understand the point of it, right? Like, I don't think I got anything out of it. Yeah, okay. So, first of all, I think that as far as the comedic element, which you talked about, yes, I it worked well for me. You know, he's making fun of himself a lot. You know, he talks about how in that scene where they have to write the songs against each other. He's like, you know, I, I knew someday that someone would come along and write a better song than me, you know, really, really hyping himself up. And he's like, oh, but, and and you've done it or whatever. But I think that on a grander level, putting Ed Sheeran in this movie actually is sort of a response to a lot of the criticisms that I've seen. Because first of all, you know, we have what I talked about where people are saying that they don't really know if the Beatles music would be popular as popular as it is, you know, depicted in this movie, if it came out today. And I think that there's a couple levels to that critique, because first of all, if we're asking the question of would the Beatles music be popular today, I think the answer is yes. And I think that Ed Sheeran is the perfect example, because while, yes, as you've said, the Beatles are definitely better than Ed Sheeran. There's no one, not a lot of people who are disputing that, except for maybe some teenage girls. But he is the most clear, I think, modern stand in for um, what the Beatles represented, right? Uh, and I think that his music stylistically is very similar to what Ed Sheeran has been able to do in the modern era. So I think that by having him in the movie, by having his songs in the movie, we understand that, yes, if the Beatles put these songs out today, they probably would be popular because Ed Sheeran's songs are popular. And I think that there's a lot of similarities there. Um, And so I don't think it's right to say that the Beatles music would not be popular if it came out today. I think the other question is, would the Beatles music be considered the greatest music ever if it came out today? And I think the answer to that is no. And I think that the movie does a good job of not suggesting that it would be the greatest music ever. Right. Because a lot of people talk about how, oh, Jack, he's going to put out the greatest album ever. And, you know, these are the greatest songs we've ever heard written. But at the same time, none of the actual people in the movie really think that, right? Like early on, we have the joke about how he sings yesterday and the woman says, you know, well, it's not as good as Coldplay's Fix You. And then later in the movie, we have Gavin talking about how, 
well, you know, the songs are good, but Common People by Pulp is better. And personally, I agree with him because that's my favorite song of all time. But um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a sidebar. But no one actually believes that they're the greatest songs ever written. And you know what? They're probably not. I mean, some of the, the Beatles wrote some beautiful songs. They also wrote She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. And that's not one of the greatest songs ever written. But again, th and this is where it also pays homage to the Beatles, um, because I think that it suggests that it's not just the songs, right? It's who the Beatles were. It was the exact time in history that they came about. It was a perfect storm that led to the Beatles becoming the success that they were. It wasn't just the writing of the songs. So that's a little bit of a sidebar from Ed Sheeran. But I think the other thing that Ed Sheeran accomplishes is that, you know, because the Beatles were more than just the music, I don't believe that uh, this guy, this, you know, Jack Malik would achieve the same kind of success because he doesn't have like the sex appeal that the Beatles have. And again, I have to disagree because look at Ed Sheeran. I mean, here's a guy who is a small ginger white dude who's tatted up and wears flannels all the time. And yet he's one of the biggest pop stars in the world and girls are in love with him. Like it really doesn't make any sense, right? When you, when you look at Ed Sheeran, it doesn't make sense why he's a sex symbol, but he writes really good songs. And, and so I think that it's not right to say that there's no way Jack could achieve, uh, achieve such success just from the songs, because I think Ed Sheeran has shown perfectly that you can do that. So I think that's where, why putting him in the movie actually makes a lot of sense for what the movie is trying to say and responding to some of those criticisms of, you know, how the premise is carried out. I, def I agree with your latter point for sure. But the first point about them saying like, or the point about Ed Sheeran being popular, maybe not the greatest in the, of all time or in the world, but popular. It's like, I, like, yes, that's true. But also like the movie, even if, even though everyone's saying like here and they're like, Oh, like this is my, this is the best song of all time. Not this, but the, the everyone like in the movie throughout the movie talks about how this is like the most anticipated album of all time. And like, that's not, realist like that's not a that's, good comparison but but i mean the people who are saying that are like what his agent the media these are people who are of course going to exaggerate everything and that's kind of my point right is that everyone is talking about how big of an album it is everyone is saying it's the greatest album ever but the actual people who are listening to the music aren't really saying that they're saying you know this is really good but it's not coldplay it's not pulp i i mean but they're talking about songs they're not talking about bands Right, they're talking about like individual songs, like oh, this X song is not as good as X as this song, right? But like this is like an album level, a band level. Like, I I mean, I kind of hear what you're saying, but I also like I think it's a muddled point, and I think the and that's because like the movie muddles it, right? Like, like you don't hear someone say like oh, like X album is better than this album, right? You, you just hear like random songs that he plays, it's like oh, but like I like this song better, and like sure, like most people's favorite song probably isn't from the Beatles, and like that's that doesn't mean they don't think of the Beatles as the best band of all time. Yeah, I, I feel like that's getting into the weeds a little bit. For, for me, it worked. I think the movie did a good job of showing that. And then, like, I guess just like dovetail off that, like, I, like Ed Sheeran being the modern day equivalent of the Beatles, like that's a layer of music crit that like goes deeper than I'm able to like analyze. Yeah. So I, I like I can't talk talk about that. Or, um, but but for me, like I hear the points you're making. I think parts of or some of them resonate with me. But I also still think that. Like, I'd really be curious to to hear Danny Boyle talk about why Ed Sheeran was in this yeah. movie. I mean, last thing I'll say is that, I mean, Ed Sheeran, okay, he makes old-fashioned music, right? It appeals to everyone. Does it appeal to everyone? It appeals to a wide range of audience, everyone from grandmothers to teenage girls. 
Go look at how many plays the songs have on Spotify. You know, I think that, yeah, okay, maybe stylistically, it's not like you're, you're not hearing the same thing with both of these artists. But I think that what Ed Sheeran represents in modern day pop music is that an artist like the Beatles could pop up today and still achieve mainstream success, even if people aren't going to say it's the greatest songs ever. Yeah. I mean, Sh- Shape of You, just for an update on this, I'm on Spotify right now. Shape of You has 2.2 billion listens on spotify like his video for a long time for shape of you was the most watched music video of all time on youtube uh and i think that his music is in the tradition of the beatles if not like if if not sounding identical to the beatles and again it represents that i think the beatles music could be popular in the modern day so i think that i don't agree with the criticism that a lot of people are making that it wouldn't be as popular. And I agree that they would not consider it the greatest music ever, probably. But popular, I think it would still be popular. And his music is so different, right, from everything on the radio. Like, you know, it's not it's not like Ariana Grande. It's not mumble rap. It's not country, right? It's, it's something that there's no other artist, really, that is achieving the kind of success that he is, that is, is doing that same type of music. So, again, it's kind of that perfect storm of maybe in 30 years we'll look back at Ed Sheeran and say, how did this guy get so popular right with these songs kind of in the same way that we do with the Beatles now, because, uh, you know, the, again, they wrote a song that's just, she loves you. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's certainly not a lyrical masterpiece, but it's that perfect storm of everything adding up when they rose to popularity that led to their music being what it was. So that's my point on Ed Sheeran, but why don't we move on now to talk about, uh, any other people in the supporting cast who stood out? I mean, the other big name, I guess would be Kate McKinnon. I, I think we're. I mean, Kate McKinnon stood out, but not for any good yeah, reason. Yeah, I think me. I think we're kind of on the same page about this. But do you want to say more? As much as I liked Haimesh Patel's character, for example, and thought that he was like a really authentic and perfect casting for the role, this character agent—I've never met an agent in Hollywood. I have no idea what they're like. I'll raise my hand and admit that. But this feels like a total caricature of mm-hmm. a human being, and Kate McKinnon is like at a fifteen out of ten yeah. on this performance. And it's way too much. It's just way, way, way too much. Yeah, it feel it. It's definitely very dialed up, and you know, I did, I did laugh a couple times. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same. But I think that those laughs were few and far between to the proportion of jokes that she tells. So I think that, uh, yeah, I'm definitely in agreement with you there. That it just felt off with the rest of the movie, the level level that this character was at, Um, and nothing against Kate McKinnon, but uh, I don't think that this role did her any favors. No, it, it did not. <laughs> period. Period. End All of right. sentence. Yeah. All right, Scott. We've oh, but what about Rocky? I like Rocky. Oh, Rocky was great. I, I can't remember what the actor's <laughs> name was. I looked it up the other night. Um, but Rocky, who plays, is the best friend of, um, of... He's the roadie. I don't know if he's the best friend. Well, yeah, he's a good friend of Jack's, and he who becomes his roadie. He was hilarious. He added a, a great presence on screen. They really set his character up a lot better than they did Kate McKinnon's. And I think that because he, you know, he gets some scenes that are really funny, but he also gets some more uh, scenes that are more tender. Like when he, you know, when Jack's about to go out for his album release show and they, they share a nice little moment together where Rocky, you know, thanks him for letting him, you know, join him on this uh, musical journey. So th- it, they did a really nice job with that character sort of as an antithesis uh, to what they did with uh, Kate McKinnon. Joel Fry. Joel Fry. Great job, Joel. 
All right, let's Echo. talk a little bit uh, more about the plot. We can do some spoilers if we want. Um, and, you know, some of the themes of this movie, We've I, I've talked a little bit about what I think one of the overarching themes of the movie is. And, you know, may, maybe we can get into that with talking about specifically that scene that I alluded to earlier at the very beginning of the review. But wherever you want to go uh, with this part of the discussion, yeah, you, you may lead. Yeah, I mean, we can we can... I will say my bit about the rom-com quickly because I think, I mean, it seems like we're, pr- we're like more or less on the same page about the, the the rom-com aspect of this movie. But for example, like you talked earlier in, in our review of how you don't, it's like typical rom-com, like you don't really know how they're not already together. And I would like to say, you don't really know why these people aren't already together. Literally everyone is making jokes about whether or not they've had sex before. And I'm like, if you actually like, do you actually like her? Do you not know that you like her? Like, I don't understand what happened I, here because it was so dumb to me. It was just really dumb because like for me, it was like for the, for these characters to be where they're at, they must've like had some conversation in the past and been like, Oh, this isn't like, we're not interested in each other. This is like, they must've like, for me, it just felt like they clearly friend zoned each other many times before, if at least once. And then it was like very strange when they did really lean into like the rom-com element in the second half of the movie, when she admits to him that, you know, she's loved him this whole time. And he's like flustered because like either he doesn't know that he's loved her the whole time or he has loved her the whole time and no one said anything. It just, it felt like really bad development of this plot. None of it made any sense to me. And maybe that's also sometimes real life doesn't make any sense either. And in some ways, maybe you could say it's authentic to some degree, but it's also like, it felt like there was some element of of knowledge missing from this movie that would make everything that happened a little bit more believable. I I think what it is is that maybe that you know maybe they don't develop this well enough but you know at the beginning of the movie he's more focused on his musical career and he doesn't really see her as a person he just sees her as his manager right as someone who's always been there and oh, someone, not know. as someone who's advancing his musical career. And so he has to go through all of this with the Beatles songs, he has to achieve this level of musical success to realize that, you know, the, the powerful thing is not the songs itself. It's the combination of the songs that sharing that music with, um, you know, Ellie, which is not something that he ever appreciated really about uh, his past career because he wasn't achieving success. And he didn't, you know, he did not appreciate the fact that Ellie loved his songs and that he probably loved Ellie. He just never really thought about it. You know, I'm not going to disagree with that might be what's going on in in Danny Boyle's mind and Richard Curtis's mind. But I can tell you this much. None of that is clear from the movie. And I think that you're really taking a couple leaps to get to that point, even though I think that it's totally plausible that you're right. In your in your opinion, in your opinion, I don't I, mean, I don't know that I, I, I don't think that I'm taking. OK, I mean, sure. Yeah. In my opinion, I think you're taking a couple of leaps to get there, even though I think that you're probably right. OK, well, what makes you think that I'm taking leaps like? What what element of that do you think is not spelled out in the movie? I don't think I mean, I don't, I don't think any part of it is spelled out in the movie. I think I don't think it's spelled out that he doesn't appreciate Ellie for, for like who she is as a person, as a part of her life in the movie, other than the fact that she's his agent. I, I don't agree with that at all. I don't think the movie spells spells that out at all at the beginning of the movie. Just like I don't think he it's like, I mean, yes, it's like the the movie spells it out that he like appreciates his love for her more for the movie, but I don't think the movie even spells that she, he appreciates her love for his music more for the end of the movie. Be like, I'm talking about the music that he makes at the beginning, right? Not at the end. Like, I I just don't think any of those parts are in, are in the film. 
Well, I disagree, but um, yeah, let's, it happens. Disagreement happens. Something else I want to talk about is sort of this theme that this this existential crisis that he goes through of you know what he's done by taking over the Beatles songs and. He, he really struggles with the success that he has. And I think it goes towards this idea that I talked about earlier, how maybe not everyone is meant to be a star. And so I like how the movie portrays that. And especially the scene with John Lennon that happens towards the end where, you know, of course, because the Beatles never existed, <laughs> John Lennon is still alive. And so um, Jack goes to John Lennon's house and they share a little moment together. And it's a nice scene, but more than that, I think, you know, so, while John Lennon talks about, it, he's like, yeah, you know, I've had a good life and all of this stuff. Something's not right about it, right? There, You can tell the whole time that Jack's looking at him and he's feeling like this is not right. Like, okay, it's great that John Lennon was alive, but this is not the person that John Lennon is supposed to be. And in the same way, you know, the, the music star is not the person that Jack is supposed to be. Um, so I think that they did a really nice job of having that scene in there. It, it didn't feel like just... Uh, an empty scene just there to pull on the heartstrings by, you know, bringing up John Lennon. I thought that it went nicely towards that theme. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I liked that. I like the conflict that he goes through um, at, you know, what he's doing with these songs. It was a weird scene, right? I think it, it definitely adds layers on to the experience of, of other parts of the movie, uh, particularly how he wrestles with being the person who's, now known as the one writing these songs and performing this music. I guess one of the things that I didn't like was that it was then like played for laughs at the end when like he goes for the hug and John Lynn's like, you're being really weird <laughs> as weird as it is. Yeah. As weird, as weird as it I is, mean, right? Like as weird as it is. And as much as you understand, like him wanting to give the guy a hug, like in his mind, right? Like he is the creator of all this music that his life is dedicated to at this point. And so from that, it, I think it's a powerful, it's a powerful moment in that sense, but it's still, I mean, the scene itself just felt off-putting, right? Not to me, but I, I think it's also powerful because, you know, we see throughout the movie that although Jack is, you know, he's writing the songs and he's having success performing them, he doesn't really understand the songs, right? Like he has all of this, he has all of these post-it notes yeah. up, right? And there's, you know, the scene between him and Lily James where she's like pointing out the the columns, right, that he has. And, you know, in the, in the one column he has, like, Julia and Michelle and Sexy Sadie and all these Beatles songs about girls. And then, you know, she's in the other column, as she calls it. Um, mm -hmm. So, he you know, he doesn't actually know any of these people. These aren't yeah. people that he's interacted with. And then more prominently, of course, is the scene with between him and Ed Sheeran when they talk about Hey Jude. And he just kind of makes up this backstory about, uh, you know, it's about my friend's son who is going through a hard time. And Ed Sheeran's like, I don't believe you. And for a second... You know, he thinks he's going to be a big, be exposed and then Ed Sheeran kind of turns it into a joke. But that's another thing that the movie gets right. I think that, again, it's not just about the songs, right? It's about the people behind them. It's about the stories behind them. And even though Jack is able to achieve success with the songs, he doesn't he's not feeling personally fulfilled. Right. Because he doesn't understand what he's singing about. Uh, and there's something missing from the songs that was there when the Beatles performed them. Yeah, no, I, I really I do really agree with that point. I, and it is a critical part of one of the subplots of the movie, right? When you have him traveling around to the different areas and and trying to like, un, like at least understand a little bit, right? To sing about these places he's never been. And, yeah. and, and, and I guess it's called out in the movie. I think that's that's good. But I also think that this ties into like how weird it is that the songs are so 
popular, right? That he like he isn't able to infuse the songs with a lived experience. And so the fact that the songs are still, I mean, maybe the, maybe you could say if he had a lived experience, the songs would be more popular. I and, don't know. But uh, I, I also think that adds an interesting like meta element to the music. Yeah. And maybe that's where they're making a little bit of a commentary and say, I mean, do, do people really value, value music nowadays for that sort of element, right? Or are they just looking for good hooks and everything? Because, you know, can, can you really look at some of these songs that are at the top of the charts and say, oh, yeah, the, you know, this song feels really lived in? You know, can you listen to Cardi B and say that this song feels really lived in? I don't know. So maybe that's a little bit of a social commentary. Big, big shout out Cardi B there. I, have no, I can't answer that, that is, question. <laughs> I think that is a good point. Uh, and then the last thing, Scott, I want to talk about, we, we, ha- we still haven't really mentioned the scene yet, but... Um, you know, we, we get kind of the a gist early on with these two characters, one that who comes to one of Jack's shows and is just kind of shell shocked by what he hears. And then a woman who sort of follows him around as he's going through Liverpool. And, you know, I, I, I think we both probably got, kind of got the hint early on that, OK, these people probably it seems like they probably remember the Beatles. Right. Like they're not they actually uh, Jack's actually not the only one. Right. That there's a couple other people. Yep. And so it, it all builds sort of to the scene where they confront him. And, you know, this is, I think, you know, maybe my favorite scene in the movie um, when they confront him and you expect that they're going to, you know, accuse stealing the songs and all of this and, uh, you know, be really frustrated with him. But actually, they, you know, love the fact that he's brought these songs back and that they just the fact that they can hear the songs again, because no one that they talked to heard of the Beatles except for Jack. Uh, And so the fact that um, he's brought these songs back into the mainstream, right? That's the important thing to them. And they they share, you know, a nice little scene together where they sing Yellow Submarine. And it's at a time in the movie where Jack has been going through a lot. But we, you know, we see the his face, you know, light up when he gets to sing this song with these people. And again, mm-hmm. goes back to that theme. I think that that's that that's where it really clicks for him. Right. That he can't keep on doing this and that uh, he needs to go back to sharing music with the people that he loves, because when he's able to have a connection with these people through the music. Um, he suddenly feels like what he's doing is right. And that for the first time really in the whole movie, because nobody else has that sort of connection with him because they don't know the songs. Um, you know, that they haven't been through the, the sort of history that he has with these songs. And so that, that scene just really felt right. And took a, took a twist from what I was expecting it to go. And it, it really felt right to what the movie was. Yeah. Doing. I mean, I alluded to this earlier, but I also think this is the best, scene in the movie i think that that for me and i think that this subplot right is the best is the best part of the movie and so that's why i i mean one of the frustrating parts is that it's it is a subplot right it's not the main focus of the movie because i think that this is because this is the best part this should have been the focus of the movie and so i really wanted more out of this and it also brings but but well don't you think that that's what's driving the romance i mean like well, just, like I said, I think, I think they weave them together in a way. Like I, when you say it should have been the main focus of the movie, I, I I'm just kind of wondering what you mean. Like, how would you have liked this to be more focused? The plot to be more focused on this part. I would have liked it to be more focused on like hit the like implications for him as an, as an artist and as his, his success because it it is relegated to a subplot in my opinion. Yes, but I also just think it's that kind of a movie, right? It's a, I don't think all elements of the romantic aspect of the movie is is completely interwoven with his mental health around plagiarizing. Yes, not completely, but I think that this particular scene is right. Because again, he connects with these people through the music and he, yeah. And in a way that he's not able to connect with Ellie. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And I, you know, at the end of the day, I think we can say, you know, that, okay, maybe we would have liked this to explore more about, you know, his existential crisis and what it means yeah. for artistry and music as a whole. But it's just not that kind of a movie, right? It's, it's a romance. But it should have been. <laughs> fantasy at the end of the day. In my opinion, it would have been better if it, if it had been that kind of movie. Okay, yeah. Well, and yeah, maybe you would have appreci- maybe you would have appreciated the movie more that way. But that's because but this goes back to the point that I was actually like trying to make was that I think that the you talk about the premise or like it being like a fitting tribute and like it it doing justice to the like the premise doing justice to the Beatles. And like I don't agree with that. I just don't agree because I think that this premise is almost entirely unexplored. Like that you talk yes, you talk about like suspending your disbelief for the blackout, right? And and like that's not feasible to happen. Sure, like I spend my disbelief, but then Okay, well, why do why are there only two other people who have only who like who are like Jack, right? Like, I want more out of that, and I think. Do we? But do we really need to know that? Like, why is that important to the movie? It's it's important from a world building perspective for me. I mean, the same reason that like like you don't need to know why other elements of like other fantasy worlds come into existence, but like it makes it a better movie to understand the lore of a world better. Yeah, I mean, this ain't Harry Potter. That's all I'm saying. Like, I, I just think it's it's a totally different kind of movie. It's going for something completely different. I, I think it would have just gotten really unwieldy and clunky if it had had those elements, right? Like, it, it's kind of, to use a really weird example, but like, you know, in Happy Death Day, we didn't need the explanation that, you know, why she's caught in the time loop, right? It was, it was a perfectly fine movie without that. And okay, we got that in the sequel and it was a pretty good sequel. But uh, the, the, the first movie was great on its own. I don't think everything needs to be explained in every single movie that, um, you know, sets up something. But I'm not asking for everything to be explained, but but I'm not asking for everything to be explained. I'm asking for the fundamental hook of the movie to like have some sort of credence, especially after a curveball was thrown that two other random people have had the same experience, like in happy death day in the original movie, like there's no one else living the same experience that tree is. And so that's why I'm like willing to like throw my hands and be like, Hey, it's fine. that I don't understand why she's reliving the same day on loop on loop but if two other people in that movie were also living the same thing like you've made the hook more relevant to understand why it's happening and that's what the second movie does it introduces the fact that other people are having the same experience as her and introduces that plot but like this movie does i mean look i'm I'm not saying that it has to explain every single detail but it introduces a layer to the movie because of this thing that makes it really interesting that but helps i don't think that, that's that why the mental health i don't think that's it why opens it up a hole it, right i i i think again it introduces it to get at that theme that i'm talking about uh, I don't think it introduces it to add complexity to the universe that he suddenly finds himself in. Oh, it adds complexity to his mental, like to his mental health. Like, yeah, no, I'm, we're saying the same thing. Like, it, it, like they introduce it so that he can be confronted by two people who share the same lived experience yeah. of him, like listening to the Beatles for 30 years. But you, you've like also opened a plot hole when you've done that. And like, I'm not going to forgive you for it. Like, I'm not just going to like wave it off. Because of it, which is, I understand if you do, right? Like, I do understand it. Like, it was for, like, the movie is probably better for having introduced these two extra people. Not even probably. The movie is better for having introduced this, these two extra people. But at the same time, like, you've made your world, like, more confusing and I understand it even less. And I'm not as willing to, like, throw my hands up in the air and hand wave it away as easily as I would have before when you didn't, like, go into the lore of the world more. It's just me, right? Like, I'm not saying that this is what everyone needs to do. It's just like how I respond. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I think we can move into wrap up at this uh, point. And I want to know what your favorite yeah. scene is, since it seems like you kind of dislike the whole movie. That's not, no, 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 that's so not true. I, I have to be the, I mean, okay, like Scott, like I have to be the balancing force here because this is like, 
I think that you've taken a strong and you've defended it well stance of why you think this is an incredible movie that speaks really strongly to you. And like, I want to reiterate from the beginning of the film that I had a really, really good time watching this movie. I think the, I think the main performances are really strong. I think that overall I'm swept away by like reliving the like introduction of the Beatles music into this, into this world who no longer have this knowledge of the Beatles. I think that the, moments in which this movie addresses the like his psyche his mental health around what he's doing are really good i think that as any derivative rom-com is to some extent entertaining this movie is also entertaining in that sense and i wanted lily uh lily james and Hamish Patel to end up together and i'm really happy that they did and i really enjoyed the music these are all things that i really enjoy the thing is like i'm also just trying to balance out where i struggled a little bit more with the movie and my favorite scene is that scene where those two people confront uh, confront Jaime, confront Jack about uh, the fact that he isn't really the creator of the of the, of the music, but really appreciating that he was there and that he had the talent to be able to perform that music uh, after he was able to you know write it down, remember it, etc. I think that that was a really emotionally powerful and satisfying end to that sequence, which you rightfully note is is uh, was a twist, right? You didn't you don't expect that when they confront him, and so. I talk about the rom-com being predictable and derivative. I think that subplot is anything but, and I really, really enjoyed that. Okay, uh, I want to highlight the ending because, yeah, I think I agree with you that that scene is probably my favorite. But, you know, obviously y'all can probably tell that this movie resonated a lot with me just on a personal level. And so I think that it's important to highlight maybe some of the reasons why that is. And I think the ending scene is a good example. At the end, you know, after he has made his big speech and said, um, that he's not the one who wrote the music um, and stepped away from all of it. And we see that he has returned to Suffolk um, and he's with Ellie now and they're teaching music and he's singing Obla Di Obla Da to a, a school full of children. And that really resonated with me because that was the first Beatles song that I ever heard. My dad played it for me. So I think that obviously, you know, seeing this this uh, room full of school children singing it um, re- resonated with me because that was my experience of hearing this song as a child and making me love the Beatles and making me love music. And I think that, uh, you know, that's what this movie does as well. So I appreciated that scene. All right. What's your low score that I'm going to frown on? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) Yes. It's going to be much lower than whatever you score it, but it's okay. Uh, 7.0. All right. Well, this is my first 10 of the year, Scott. Like I said, I think it's flawed, but uh, when I look back on the movie, there's really not anything that I would change. I think that, uh, yeah. even with its flaws, the experience that I had walking out of this movie, like I, I, I can't have wanted anything more to feel anything more from this movie when I walked out. So I can't really yeah. give it anything but a 10. Yeah. And, and to, to dovetail with that, like I enjoyed this so much more than Bohemian Rhapsody than rocket man. And I know that's a low bar, but like, it's a, it's significantly cleared that for me. It's one of those movies where I walked out of that. I felt really strongly about, and it was a really good experience. And just after sitting with it for a little bit, it did come down a little bit for me. And that's okay. Right. Like I'd still recommend it. Go see it. It's really fun, really enjoyable, especially if you love the Beatles, right? Which is clear from, you know, the entire piece that you went on. And I'll acknowledge like the whole bit about Ed Sheeran, especially like I don't have that like musical background, maybe to have the appreciation that that you that you have for that, right? And and I love that you loved this movie and it was a 10 for you. And I don't want to take away from that. Okay, uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be discussing some of the latest news items and a couple of new trailers. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. It's got a few news items and trailers to get through before we finish out today's episode, uh, starting with uh, some big news in the world of Netflix movies. Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep, stars of, of course, one of our favorite shows, Big Little Lies, um, are going to be headlining uh, a new musical at Netflix called Prom that is uh, directed by Ryan Murphy. Uh, and we also have learned that um, Aquafina, Keegan Michael Key, and James Corden will be in the cast, as well as potentially Ariana Grande, um, if she can work it out with her scheduling. It's got obviously a huge cast. Ryan Murphy, very established um, in the world of television. Something that gets you excited? Yeah, for sure. I mean, at this point, if you tell me that Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep in the you know middle of season two of Big Little Lies, which what they are in top form for, and they're going to be in a movie together, it doesn't matter what kind of movie it is. Doesn't matter if it's a musical. Doesn't matter if it's a drama. Doesn't matter if it's a comedy. I'm super hyped for it, and that's exactly how I'm feeling about prom. Yeah, no, they're absolutely crushing it right now on that show. Um, and I don't know, like, have they ever done a musical? For, I guess Nicole Kidman was in Moulin Rouge, right? But I, I mean, I, I, can't, I guess Mamma Mia, Meryl Streep was in, so there, there is that. But I don't know if that really does justice to her talents. But um, yeah, this, this is going to be interesting. And obviously, you know, we can't forget about Aquafina too, who I think is, um, you know, a star on the rise, someone that we, we really like. And James Corden as well as someone who always adds a good comedic presence, um, whether it's on TV or movies. So I think this is uh, definitely going to be something to look out for. Yeah. And to give credit for Keegan-Michael Key, the only person who didn't mention, uh, yeah. he's going to play Meryl Streep's love interest, which is crazy. Wow, that is crazy. <laughs> I hope they get some good comedy out of that. I'm sure I they mean, will. if they don't, then they that's wasted. It's a missed right opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, uh, it's got some other news. Uh the uh, the co-writer of Hobbs and Shaw, which is the new uh, Fast and Furious movie that we will be getting next month, uh, Drew Pierce is his name. Uh, he is also uh, go- going to be uh, helming a new project for Netflix, um, and it's a thriller called Quartermaster. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen Hobbs and Shaw yet. I I think that, unfortunately, <laughs> Drew Pierce was the writer for Iron Man 3, so maybe... I like Iron Man 3. I mean, I like it, but it's not what it, I mean, wait, it's not. Right, wait, didn't Shane, I mean, Shane Black wrote Iron Man 3 too, right? Or did he just direct it? Well, we'll see, right? I like I like parts of Iron Man 3, but I also don't like parts of it. And so, I mean, everything that we've seen of Hobbs and Shaw from the trailers, which we'll, I mean, we're going to talk about the final trailer a little bit later on in this episode. It, I'm really positive on, right? And if this movie is going to be a little bit like a little bit less substance and a little bit more spectacle. Uh, then I think Drew Pierce is the right guy for that because I think that's kind of the flavor that I'm getting from Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of this is going to be dependent on what we think about Hobbs and Shaw. Um, But, you know, I like it. I I like what I've seen from these trailers. Um, So we'll definitely have to see what he can bring. Obviously, as a writer, this will be, I think, his first time directing. So uh, obviously him making that transition will be something to watch as well. But uh and, and, and of course, I want to know more about the movie as well. There's there's just I feel like there's a lot of gray area at this point. But yeah, and that's and that's often the case with Netflix projects, right? Like they just don't yeah. they don't share that many details before it's like a week before release. And then all of a sudden you have a trailer and plot details and it's like a big <laughs> it comes out of nowhere yeah. almost. And I think that this kind of if, if this does end up being a Hobbs and Shaw or Iron Man 3 like film, something like Bright, maybe that Netflix has already produced. It'll be interesting because Netflix hasn't been successful yet with that type of original content. So we'll we'll see what they're able to produce over there um, from a Netflix original perspective, because if you know, if it ends up being like that kind of movie, like that is the kind of movie that thrives in the theater. Not that it wouldn't thrive on Netflix, but that people like want to go see on a big on the big screen. Right. Um, so, I mean, 
maybe it'll get a theatrical release. We, we don't know what the state of Netflix in terms of theatrical releases will be the time this movie comes out, but it will be interesting because I think Netflix has had their success in original movie content in other genres and other types of film. Um, they're rightfully trying to expand that, but it's an, it's unproven ground for Netflix. I think in terms of original content right now. Okay. And final bit of Netflix news, Scott, we have what appears to be another movie in what I have like to call the you piss genre, uh, E U P I S, um, standing for emotionally withdrawn people in space. Of course, uh, it seems like we're getting more and more of these movies nowadays, uh, you know, following gravity first man, we're getting ad Astra later this year. And now we're getting, the sky. Yeah. Right. And now we're getting, uh, George Clooney, uh, who is going to star and direct an adaptation, uh, of this novel, good morning, midnight, uh, of course for Netflix as well. My understanding is that it's a story about two people, um, two like astronauts who are, Kind of lost in space together. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts on this? I think George Clooney is the only name that we know at this point. Uh, yeah, no, so, you know, he's, you know, right, he's acting and directing. So that'll, that'll be interesting from him. I've, I've had like very mixed opinions about his di- like directorial outings. So it'll be interesting what he's able to create from that perspective. I haven't watched Catch 22 yet, which I know he helped yeah, create and, and direct over there at Amazon. So we'll see what his most recent project looks like whenever I get around to watching that. As for this type of movie, I'm usually more positive on these films than you are. I do like space movies. Uh, I think that the the space j- movie genre, however, could do with a little bit less emotional emotional withdrawal, though. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I think it worked. I, I mean, in my opinion, I think it worked well with Gravity. The, I know the oop, not as big a the fan. ooh part is what gives you trouble, not so much the piss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the piss. Hate the ooh. <laughs> um, there you go. That'll be a good tagline for yeah, a podcast. Put future. that one on the poster. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No. So I, I, I think that it, if it hopefully it doesn't end up being that right. Like, I think that 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 I don't I mean, maybe this is just the reality of astronauts. Maybe we're, it's just that kind of people go to go are the people who go to space. But I think that a little bit more emotion, a little bit more flavor, a little bit more character could do that genre could have a little bit of good, at least even I know that's a true story. I will be interested to see how Ad Astra plays out later this year because it does look like that. Losing the Sky definitely looks like that. So hopefully this doesn't follow exactly in those footsteps. Granted, maybe both those movies end up being spectacular. So we'll see. All right. uh, Moving our attention over to uh, another giant in Disney. Uh, First of all, we got the news this week that uh, we have the first bit of casting for uh, Disney's live action remake of The Little Mermaid. Of course, they're uh, slowly working their way through all the animated classics, turning them into... uh, into live action uh, remakes and the little mermaid is uh, I believe next year coming out. Um, and we know now that Melissa McCarthy is going to star as the uh, villain in this movie, Ursula thoughts on this Scott? Yeah, apparently it's, it's early talks, but I feel like whenever early talks get reported, it's like 95% of the time ends up who's yeah. getting cast. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a good casting, albeit maybe safe. It'd be really interesting if they did something uh, with this movie that, shook it up a little bit and hey maybe they might with some other castings in the movie right we don't know yet but i think it i was listening to movie talks i can't take credit for this thought but there was uh an individual i can't remember i don't think it was one of the normal collider crew on there who suggested that um titus from uh, unbreakable kimmy schmidt would have been a great <laughs> titus Ursula. Burgess, yeah yeah titus burgess but i think i can't remember is that is that, is that, is that the actor's name because they're both named titus that's his real name yeah titus yeah, burgess titus burgess would have been would be a great fit for that character and honestly I can't deny that. And that would have been a great you know, shakeup for the traditional view of the little mermaid. That being said, I think Melissa McCarthy will probably absolutely crush this role, uh, but it won't, but she won't necessarily bring anything new, which is our, it feels like that's our most common complaint 
with Remy. Yeah. So it just doesn't bring anything interesting or new to the movie. And so in that sense, we're going to get something that's about on par with what our expectations would be, even if they nail the expectations probably with a casting like Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. You know, that is a good point. I, I, you know, I, I was excited about this news just cause I like the choices that Melissa McCarthy is making now with her acting career. But I think that you, you do raise a good point that I'm not sure that she's going to be able to do with this character, like what Will Smith was able to do with the genie and make it his own. Um, so maybe they would have been better served going in a different direction, but we'll see. We're still a little bit of a ways off from this movie. So Yeah, and you asked me a question on Friday when I sent you this news that there isn't any casting yet for Ariel. So, you know, what? Yeah. I think there, there's still plenty of potential in other areas for this movie where they can subvert expectations from the original. And so I, I want to give them time and credit there since they did impress me with Aladdin. You know, it's one of my you know top 10 favorite movies of the year so far. We'll see what they do with The Lion King. Maybe a little bit more skeptical about that one. But yeah, I, I, there's still time. But I think... Uh, the casting of the villain is always a good opportunity to shake things up in a movie, especially if it's a remake. But uh, again, I think they cast someone who's really going to meet every component of the expectations that we would have. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next bit of news, Scott, something I heard on Collider Live this week is that uh, two actors who we are both fans of, Livia Cook and La- Lakeith Stanfield, uh, are going to be starring in a yet untitled and sort of, we don't really know any details on it yet either. Uh, fairy tale movie over at Disney Plus. You know, there was a really interesting point made last week that I think all, that I saw. I can't remember who it was, but it probably was from on Movie Talk somewhere, right? That like Dis- the most frustrating part about Disney, and I think that we would both agree with this. This wasn't like a mind blowing thought, but like they just don't create original con- like Disney proper doesn't create original content anymore. Yeah, and so like yes, you get original content from Pixar. Yes, you get original content from Marvel. I mean, well, original content, quotation marks, because it's all adapted from comics, but whatever. All you get from like the Disney um, proper uh, live action studios is remakes or some sort of um, sequels, spinoff, whatever. You don't get original content. And so if this is going to be original content, especially if it's in a live action format, I'm all for it. I'm really excited about it. I love Olivia Cook. I love Lakeith Stanfield. They're two of the probably hottest up and coming actors and actresses uh, in the business. And if they if Disney Plus can get miniseries, whether it's a movie, whatever it ends up being, if they can get something original out there that's not in the Marvel or Pixar category, I'm all for it. Yeah. And, you know, this is something else we've talked about how, uh, you know, what kind of competition Disney Plus is going to be for Netflix. And I think that, you know, my position has always been that Netflix is going to be producing the most, you know, original content out there. Like, you know, Disney is going to have the big properties, right? They're going to have the Star Wars stuff. They're going to have the Marvel shows. But in terms of original content, uh, Netflix is going to have that leg up. But if Disney can start putting stuff out like this consistently, I mean, I'm sure it will take them a while to get to the sort of uh, rate that Netflix has of putting out original content where there's 10 new shows every single week. But uh, I think that's what they need to do in order to be like a true competitor with Netflix. Okay, uh, final bit of Disney news, Scott. Of course, we know that Disney has acquired Fox recently. Um, and we got some news on one of the projects uh, that is going to be at the new Fox Disney uh, conglomerate, and that is a animated Flash Gordon movie to be directed by Taika Waititi. Yeah, this is my own ignorance, but I don't even know, like, what is Fox's animation studio? I don't even know. So I don't know who's going to be creating yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I, all I can think of is, like, stuff in, like, the early 2000s and late 90s. Like, didn't they have, like, the Prince of Egypt and Anastasia and all that? Wasn't that Fox? Oh, they do Ice Age, of course. They have Ice Age. That's what it, yeah. So they have Ice Age and Rio and the Peanuts movie. Did, but did, wasn't it them who did like Prince of Egypt and Anastasia and 
Road to El Dorado and all that. <laughs> yeah, they did the Prince of Egypt in the Fox Showdown. Animation Studios. All right. Um, so there you go. But yeah, no, I mean, this is this is interesting because Flash Gordon is known for being an extremely campy movie. Um, the original, that is, which, of course, was not animated. Um, and so I think that Taika Waititi, he's probably not going to for for because I know that some people probably want them to just go in a completely different direction with this Flash Gordon movie. I, Taika Waititi is probably not the person to bring in if you want to go away from the camp. But I think he's found a way to make that sort of a campy movie in a way that uh, doesn't sacrifice quality and just doesn't have you really groaning at sort of the cheesiness of it. So I think if they're trying to capture that feel of the original, but also um, appeal to more people, I think that this is sort of a good choice. Okay, it's got some other casting news outside of Disney. Um, some more uh, casting news for Ghostbusters 2020. Of course, we know that some of the original cast members like uh, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver are all returning alongside people like Finn Wolfhard and Gary Coon. And now we know that Ant-Man himself, Paul Rudd, will be making an appearance. I imagine this gets you excited. Yes, it does. I, you know, the ageless Paul Rudd, I think he'll still look the exact same when he's 100. But no, he's a great personality to have in a movie. I think that maybe he'll never deliver the most memorable performance of all time. But every single time he uh, clocks into a movie, it's a good performance. Yeah, he's really mastered sort of the comedy action genre. Uh, through those Ant-Man movies and Avengers movies. So I think this is uh, a good franchise for him to join next. Yeah, it just feels right to me. Yeah. Uh, Some other casting news, Scott, that I was uh, intrigued by uh, is that Henry Cavill, of course, previously Superman, uh, will be playing Sherlock Holmes uh, in this movie, uh, The Adventures of Enola Holmes, I believe is is what it's called. Um, And maybe it's just called Enola Holmes. Uh, Alongside Millie Bobby Brown playing the title character, who is... Uh, Sherlock's younger sister. And I think this movie is going to focus mainly on her adventures with Sherlock sort of assisting her. An interesting spin for sure on Sherlock Holmes, which I think is a property that we've seen done a lot recently. Uh, Does this get you intrigued? Yeah, I I am intrigued. I don't know how significant Henry Cavill's role will be as Sherlock Holmes. Like you mentioned, this is based off a kind of a spinoff book series by Nancy Springer, and that's called the Enola Mm -hmm. Holmes Mysteries. Um, And this is like some previously unhurt like unknown sister of sherlock and mycroft called enola so again we'll see how like how major henry cavill's role as sherlock holmes will be because it feels like millie bobby brown is going to be the star but you know big week for millie bobby brown with stranger things season three coming out next week so uh it's a big piece of news i think i'm gonna it's gonna be a wait and see approach should make up for the uh uh disappointment of godzilla (laughs) i would say for yeah yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay, Scott, I don't even know how to classify this next bit of news because, the, to be fair, we don't even really know what it is. But A24 put out a video this week um, with the the title simply A24 Public Access. Um, and it was really just like a 15 to 20 second promo. Again, for it's not really very clear for what for, but potentially um, a streaming service or at least some service where you may be able to get their uh, content uh, it seems like for free, you know, the, the, the title public access would seem to suggest that, uh, Scott, any clues on what this might be and, you know, what are your feelings towards this at this point? Yeah, I think I wouldn't say there's any concrete, um, clues because, because there's something like canopy already, right? Like because a 24s movies are out there on a service already. It's interesting to see, okay, would they be pulling all that off to have their own streaming service is a 24 really big enough to sustain a streaming service. That's like, that's a super interesting question right there. Like 
Yes, they are one of the biggest ones of these, but they are ultimately still an indie production company. Like they, they aren't that big. They don't have the resources of a Disney Plus. Granted, they're not making movies like Disney Plus is, or and they're not making movies like Disney is. Of course, obviously, that's a that's a very obvious statement. But you know, it would be really interesting. Public access, if it is publicly available, then that means that they're not going to have subscription revenue, which means that you know they're probably going to move towards like an ad supported revenue and. Really, the only major player in AVOD right now is Hulu, which is owned by Disney, of course. Um, And so it'll be interesting because Hulu does a lot of different things. I think some people really feel that that the ad-supported video on demand space is much less lucrative than streaming and having that that guaranteed subscription uh, revenue that has you have clear side of uh, line of sight into on a month by month or year by year basis. So I'm not really sure what they're doing with this. I hope that we we aren't right and in our in our guesswork here but i just don't know what this could be yeah i mean so with canopy of course you still have to have a library card to um be able to access it so maybe this is just a way for them to put all of their content online for free because that does seem like consistent with their mission statement to an extent that uh, they just want people to see these independent movies right um and most of these movies deserve to be seen because they're some of the best that the independent film Uh, circuit has to offer at this point so i think that would be a cool move if they just decided to you know put everything in a in a free library online but it would be i guess it would be interesting from a business perspective yeah i mean it's like a24 as awesome as they are and i mean you love them even more than i do i just like they still gotta they still have to like break even and so i don't know yeah they've probably run the numbers and maybe they think that people just i mean they have they, they can see their own sales like maybe they People aren't buying their movies on iTunes. People aren't buying their DVDs. People aren't renting their movies. I don't know. Like they, they clearly run the numbers and they clearly think that ad supported content, if that is the direction they go, would make them more money. But that's also a bit concerning for them as a studio too. Yeah. All right, Scott, a couple trailers to talk about before we conclude today. First of all, we got the first trailer for the Charlie's Angels remake, uh, which is going to be written and directed by Elizabeth Banks, who's also starring as Bosley. Um, and starring as the Angels, we have Kristen Stewart, Naomi Scott, and I, th- I believe her name is Ella Belinsky. Uh, it's her, like her first movie, um, but she's going to also be uh, one of the Angels. Scott, wasn't a hu- I wasn't a huge fan of this trailer. I'll just not bury the lead and go ahead and say it. Uh, did you have different feelings than me? Yeah, Ellie, I think it's Ella Belinska, not Belinsky, okay. but um, same difference, right? It's close enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think that, you know, for me... I don't know if I was a big fan of this trailer at the same time. Like I probably, I'm still probably going to go see this movie. Like I knew what this movie was going to be already. This movie, this, like this trailer didn't teach me anything. In fact, it, it probably told me more than I wanted to know about the film. Right? Like this was a three plus minute, maybe even more than three minute trailer. Like why are they releasing such a long trailer about their film when the movie comes out in five months? So that was just confusing. It's also, this seems so much it's like so different than other charlie's angels movies granted i'm not a charlie's angels like buff on the movie history but there's three different bosleys like elizabeth banks jaiman hansu and patrick stewart are all bosley different bosleys in this movie which i don't understand i i don't think that's consistent across all the movies but i don't really know either yeah like like i felt before there was like one bosley but yeah because i think wasn't it Bill Murray in the originals? I don't yeah, remember. I don't know, honestly. I, that could be right. I'm not sure. But the point is, like, I'm a little bit concerned about this movie. This movie's coming out holiday season. It feels like it should be coming out in the summer. I don't know how well this movie will do up against things like Ford versus Ferrari. 
which I think is the same weekend. It just looks super derivative to me. And um, I don't know that it's really going to bring anything new. You know, the jokes weren't really that funny in the trailer. Um, You know, it wouldn't be the first time that a a good movie has a bad trailer, but I don't see a lot of uh, good signs for this movie, especially as you said, with the holiday release, I feel like it might get crushed alongside uh, some of the big releases uh, coming around that time of year. Yeah, I think Frozen 2 is coming out the week before or something like that. Like it's going to I think it's going to have it's it might have a rough go. That being said, like Kristen Stewart, I'm very on board for. I like what I saw of her in that opening shot of the trailer. Like that was entertaining, right? Like whether or not you think it was good or bad. Like I enjoyed watching that, right? Like Naomi Scott coming off of Aladdin. Like I'm very on board with seeing her. I don't know who Ella Belenska is, but she looked like she has potential. This trailer didn't really probably do a good job of what it was supposed to do. And, you know, sometimes this day and age, you know, you, you release a bad trailer, you can kill your movie. Yeah, no, that's very, I mean, we saw that with Sonic. I mean, (laughs) even if they go back and fix it now, like, is anyone really going to forget about that first trailer and the horror that they saw there? Probably not. All right. Final trailer. Uh, before we go, Scott, uh, you you mentioned it earlier, Hobbs and Shaw, the final trailer for this movie, which is coming out in the first week in August. I'm on board with this. It looks like it's going to be a really fun action movie with the typically insane stunts that the Fast and Furious franchise are known for. Did you get anything new from this uh, final bit of footage? You know, if, if they were going to release one more trailer before this film came out, even if I didn't necessarily learn anything new from it, because I don't think it did show me anything I didn't already know about, but it was just confirmation that this extended sequence that you see at the beginning of, of this final trailer where you have this mini car chase of uh, Idris Elba's character chasing, um, you know, the rock Statham and Vanessa Kirby, uh, you get confirmation that, that they're really going to bring it. Like clearly Drew, Drew Pierce knows what he's doing uh, with that. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I would, I, w- I would have wanted that kind of longer clip rather than just kind of a sizzle reel of shots, right. For this final trailer. And, for half of it, that's what I got. And so I think that was good complimentary footage from what we already saw. And even if I'm not any more or less excited, uh, mainly because I was already fully on board for this movie, uh, it did it did its job well. And I'm really looking forward to it, Scott. We're not getting a Mission Impossible this year. And I think that Hobbs and Shaw, I'm not going to say it's going to be as good as Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. but I think it'll fill some of that void. And I mean, the Fast and the Furious is like the closest contemporary, I guess we have in terms of action franchises to the Mission Impossible world. Um, so I think you're right to compare those. And I mean, yeah, you know, to, to flip what I just said a few seconds ago, this wouldn't be the first time a bad movie has had good trailers, but I, I haven't <laughs> seen anything in these trailers to suggest to me that this isn't going to be a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, we don't go to these movies for their story. Um, we go to them for the stunts and the stunts look like they're going to be amazing from the trailer. So I think this is going to be solid. Yeah, I just can't wait to see a barrel wheel Jeep shooting with a hand like Jason Statham shooting a handgun out of it flying out of the building so <laughs> they, I'm here for it they think of something new every time that's for sure they'll find a way they'll pull that helicopter to the ground all right Scott well that should just about do it for this week's episode where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter at shelton 2013 and you can find me at Scarby Dent uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of some like it Scott if you have and you'd like to support the show don't forget about our patreon page But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay, too. Uh, We would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we'll be reviewing Spider-Man Far From Home.
For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chelsea.